Did you try to reach out to him? Mm -hmm. Does it sting a little bit? No. How can you lose what you've never owned, you know? That is an excerpt from a podcast called Missing Richard Simmons. Wait, this is not an ad for that podcast. I bring it up because it is actually one of the pieces that inspired me to do Texas Twiggy. It came out in 2017, and it's a real tour de force. It does something similar to what I want to do. Dan Taberski, the show's narrator, embarks on a journey to solve the mystery of a seemingly vanished public figure, 1980s exercise guru Richard Simmons. I listened to the whole thing in probably about three days, corded earbuds jammed in my waxy little 17-year-old ears, and rediscovered it during research for this project. But what else I discovered? But as Taberski's attempts to get close to Simmons ramped up, so did serious discussions about what right the public has to intrude on Simmons' life. During its six-week run, the podcast generated increasing controversy as listeners and the media questioned whether Taberski's brand of investigative journalism consisted of anything more than badgering people and stalking a man who clearly wanted to be left alone. By the end, everyone from the Los Angeles police to Simmons' manager to many members of the media had challenged Taberski's mission was that missing Richard Simmons had generated some controversy. There's plenty of commentary on the show from, like you just heard, everyone from regular keyboard warriors to the literal LAPD. But the upshot is this. Let the man live. Which brings me back to if somebody is, if you think has issues in that way, Mm -hmm. and they say, don't talk to me, leave me alone, I want to be alone, I don't need you, I'm fine. Is there a point where if you love somebody or if you're their friend that you don't take no for an answer? Legally, no. Personally, you do you. He retired. He got out of the public eye for a reason. Let him be. I struggled with this. As I sat and scoured Facebook for hours with the dedication only a journalist or a bitter ex could have, as I inched closer and closer to Shelley's inner circle, and then to her family, and then to her, I wondered, is this weird? Am I creepy? More importantly, is this an invasion of Shelley's privacy? Throughout the process of producing the show, I have tried as much as I could to be cognizant of Shelley's privacy, her well-being, and the fact that she should very much be allowed to exist in peace without strangers prying their way into her life. But then she is a public figure and an influential one with a not insignificant footprint on the industry. Every interview I did worked its way to the question, sort of timid and apprehensive. Where is she? Is she okay? Why did she disappear? For those more well-versed in Shelley lore, Why did she lose her production companies? Why did she suddenly and inexplicably abandon what seemed to be a thriving, generative swath of companies and projects, then vanish without so much as a goodbye? There were some who took the view that Willem does about Richard. He might have been done, and he doesn't owe shit to anybody. She disappeared because she wanted to, and she has every right to have blown Dodge. She owes nobody an explanation. There were some who fell totally on the other end of that spectrum, encouraging me to find her address and show up at her house and get that damn interview if it meant knocking down her door. I fall somewhere in the middle. 
To be perfectly honest, I started this podcast thinking that the closest I would get to Shelley was a letter back, maybe a phone call with someone who met her once or twice. So in the beginning, I was pulling out all the stops, jumping into whatever details about her life I could find, knowing in the back of my mind that it wasn't like I was ever going to do anything real with it. But I either didn't give myself enough credit, or am better at this than I thought, because I ended up at the bottom of her driveway. And it's the story of how I got there. Man, I should have brought a jacket. That I am excited to tell. But also, that I still feel a little weird about. Not as much as when I started, actually, for reasons I'll explain later. But as we begin this chapter, it feels important to share that I'm aware of these moral quandaries. And with that, I invite you to come on this journey with me. To find Shelley. Previously on Texas Twiggy. Guess what? That's me, FaceTiming my friend and script proofer to excitedly read out a text back from Ryan Obermeyer. My search for Shelley started with a 2018 story in The Hollywood Reporter by Seth Abramovich, specifically with a couple sentences right at the end. In 2018, Duval was paid a visit by Ryan Obermeyer, an artist from nearby Austin who grew up with fairy tale theater and was concerned for her welfare. I brought a postcard of one of my paintings. Ryan Obermeyer, I thought, there's a starting point. I direct messaged him, knowing that he probably gets dozens of those. How's Shelley? Where's Shelley? Can I meet Shelley? You know. But one thing that journalists do not possess in great quantity is shame. So I plowed ahead. Welcome to episode 7 of Texas Twiggy, a podcast about Shelley Duvall. I'm Emma Lehman, a longtime Shelley admirer and the producer and narrator of this podcast. Today, we're talking about Shelley's inner and outer circle, those people who see her regularly, those who know and have known her. And I'll dive into how I got into this circle and what it revealed about where and how Shelley is today. Shelley doesn't have social media. I'm not even sure she has a computer, but I know she doesn't have a smartphone. There's a possibility that she had a Facebook at one point, but regardless, it was deleted years and years ago, and honestly, it probably wasn't even her in the first place. She's a little bit of a Luddite on purpose. Like, I think she doesn't love technology. She she's, you know, doesn't trust internet and stuff, and I get it. Like, I don't love it either. But um... Ryan Obermeyer calls her a Luddite on purpose. So contacting Shelley is sort of like trying to run through a glass wall. You can see what's on the other side, but there's no way to get to it. To most of us today, there's something unsettling about not having direct access to a person. Even if it's a manufactured, curated ideal of them, as many celebrities' social medias are, something about having that touchstone is reassuring. I was raised in an era where someone not having any social media either meant they were dead or in hiding. But, from what those close to Shelley were telling me, she was neither. And by those close to Shelley, I mean this interesting phenomenon I started to notice. There's a community of people, people who know her and have met her, who protect her. 
Whether it's the people in her hometown in Hill Country, other people whose creative projects on her have given them access to her, even her own family. If you go in search of Shelley, these are the people you will find. You've probably seen one of those old cop shows where they have all the suspects and their networks pinned onto a bulletin board with yarn and sticky notes building a complicated web of connections, all spiraling into this one person in the middle. It's like that. The first was Ryan, the visual artist I mentioned in episode four. From Ryan's Instagram, it seemed that he did indeed take Shelley out to lunch pretty regularly. Every once in a while, there would be a photo of her, beaming next to a coloring book or over a pair of birthday candles or signing some memorabilia. Ryan is a big photo on our imaginary bulletin board, the one who had spoken to almost everyone I got in touch with. He's mentioned in a few articles by name and a few seem to reference him, in terms of, we spoke to someone close to Shelley. He is close with her, he has been for the better part of eight years, and he culls the herd. I can only imagine the kinds of people he fields. Shelley has fans, but she also has haters and stalkers and creeps, like any celebrity. I mean, a lot of people have reached out to me because there's not really a, another public place to reach her. She'll reach out to me just because they've seen that we are together doing you know, things. And so... When I spoke with Ryan, I was at the beginning of my Shelley quest. And I was thrilled. That is, I, I gotta say, I was, I was pretty surprised that you, I feel like you're in the upper echelon of, of Shelly, uh, of like Shelly, people in Shelly's circle. And I was, I was very surprised that you, they responded and I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm, 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 I'm on your level. I'm not any <laughs> upper echelon any more than anybody, you know, because I just love Shelly and so many people love Shelly. And so I'll, I'll, I'll let people send stuff to me and then I bring it to her. I feel like I'm just one of her fingers, you know, like so that she can reach more people if she likes to. He sort of bristled at the idea that he was part of this inner circle, this higher degree of Shelley knowledge and intimacy than anybody else. In retrospect, that makes sense to me. Ryan doesn't see Shelley as some secretive celebrity to whom he has exclusive access. Shelley is just his friend. Just remember how how loved she is. I just you know, it feels it remind honestly it reminds me of of my grandmother when she was dying. This is a human being, and it's later years in life, and you know I don't know it it, it touches me in a personal way just on many levels like it does for so many people. Ryan would take Shelley to lunch, Red Lobster being a favorite, help clean out her car where she spends a lot of time, and bring her fan mail and tell her about projects about her and generally connect her to an outside world that had, in the past, been so cruel. And I've definitely been able to bring her, you know, fan mail from people around the world and she'll, it's definitely touching, you know, and that makes me feel good because she'll say things and, and, it's, and it's usually heartbreaking. She'll tear up and say, you know, I just can't believe that anyone even thinks about me or remembers me. And I'm like, you are a cultural icon. Like, there's art shows in New York City, just Shelley Duvall. Like, and she's like, oh, I didn't even know that. And that is heartbreaking, too. I, I've tried to be a, an intermediary between people like The Hollywood Reporter and let her know, like, this is available if you want. It, it's heartbreaking if there's an entire show that's, like, honoring her that she's not even aware of because she's remote. And, and it sounded to me when I met her that that wasn't 
necessarily what she wanted. He'd become adept at balancing the requests of curious fans and a curious public, and the needs and desires of his friend. He told me later over text that some people pursuing projects seemed to him to have impure motives, or at the very least, were a bit self-serving. So he's cautious about who he gives access to not just Shelley, but information about her. She has a lot of, you know, she doesn't trust a lot of people. And in even in well-meaning situations, she's perceived having been taken advantage of. But if it's further traumatizing, or if she feels like it wasn't correct or right, there's just this pattern of, I think, traumatic events. And I think, you know, The Shining is a very visible one, but I think there's more behind the scenes. Um, and all I can do as a friend is offer help and try to bring her joy. That's been my whole, my, my MO with this situation. I asked Ryan how he found Shelley. There's being inspired by someone, there's admiring them from afar, and then there's taking them on regular lunch dates and being the middleman for fan mail. For sure. So I was, you know, I wanted to know, you know, how, how you met Shelley. I, I, the way I found you was I, I read in the Hollywood, uh, in the Hollywood Reporter article. Um, so I'd love to hear how that came about. Um, I actually grew up watching uh, Shelley Duvall in uh, fairytale theater, like a lot of people. So as a kid, I grew up and that really, um, inspired my pursuit of art and my knowledge of you know film and all this stuff but um so that show was really inspirational for me and a lot of people my generation I think and so when the Dr. Phil interview happened you know I can't I think a friend sent it to me because you know they knew that I was really into The Shining and Three Women and, and uh, Fairytale Theater you know those are my like top favorites and she, and I don't think it's a coincidence that she just happened to in them so they let me know about this interview and I and I saw some of it and yeah it was pretty troubling it was like this woman in distress kind of being put on the spot on display almost it felt you know pretty exploitative and so I think that's the general consensus I think they've even retracted that episode you know which is I think a great move but um and that I think precipitated a lot of people having her back on their radar we weren't sure what exactly was going on. It, it seemed like she was in some kind of distress and not, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. And so um, I lived in Austin at the time and I had always known she lived outside of Austin. I had met her at, um, she was in a film by Guy Madden, a Canadian uh, filmmaker, and there was a premiere for it in Dallas. And uh, a friend of mine and I went and, um, we met her then that was in 98 and she had her mother with her and um you know i i talked to her about fairytale theater and all this and um she seemed very lucid she looked like shelly duvall and seemed fine i just like googled her address and i was like i know she's like within an hour away and i just wanted to like check on her i know it sounds creepy but i was like She's like the first There it is again, I thought. This line between caring and creepy, inquisitive and intrusive. And she wasn't a celebrity to us. She was just our friend that, that gave us these amazing shows. So she felt like friends. I just drove out to her house. And I'm a visual artist. And so I had like a promotional postcard with my art on it. And uh, her, I think, boyfriend. He was her boyfriend. I'm not sure what the state of their relationship is, but I'm going to call it. This elusive not-a-boyfriend is Dan Gilroy, 
a director and screenwriter who Shelley met in 1989 on the set of Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. They've lived together for decades, and while her brother calls him her boyfriend, Ryan and others are hesitant to do so. I'm just going to call him Dan. Dan answered and said she wasn't there, but she should be back soon. And I just told him, you know, I um, am part of like a fairy tale theater fan group. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to check in on if she ever needed anything or friend or whatever. Or if you need anything, here's my card. So he's like, yeah, I'll give it to her. Um, so I left. And about 15 minutes later, I had two voicemails. And I listened to them, and it was her. And they were really, they were sad. It was somebody reaching out for help. It was like, you know, hi, um, Dan didn't know I was here, and I wish I had known, because I'd really love to see somebody, and I hope you'll come back, please come back. And then she called back, you know, it must have been a few minutes later, and things. And kind of heartbreaking. I mean, in her voice, you heard, you know, kind of, she said she was kind of isolated. I think she even used that word. And so um, I drove back and we became friends, like, pretty quickly. We I stayed there till late at night um, just talking. She, she had amazing stories to tell and um, is really you know, just forthcoming with some really cool experiences she's had. I mean, she's had such an incredible life and done so many things. And I think, like you said, it gets lost in the lore and you and you, you lose out on a lot of the stuff that she did behind the scenes. Like you said, her production company. And I mean, she she wrote up this proposal and brought it to Showtime for Fairy Tale Theater and like, had the idea when she was filming Popeye and like ran it by Robin Williams. It was like, the wheels are always going. I mean, she's a genius. Throughout making this podcast, Ryan and I would text sometimes, updates about my interviews or his visits. On his most recent visit, he cleaned out Shelly's white pickup truck, a vehicle locals have learned to spot, where she spends a lot of her time. Bags and bags of stuff, he told me. She's not doing well. But then, in a pattern of fluctuations I came to expect, four days later, Xavier told me he'd never seen Shelley in a better mood. Xavier Hamill is a film director based in Los Angeles, but from Canada. Xavier co-founded a production company, After Hours Studios. I found him through a collaboration with another LA designer, Michael Laid, when they collaborated on a queer-centric homage to fairy tale theater that I've linked in the show notes. It's crazy, colorful, and quite a wild ride. I loved it. Xavier is working on a documentary about Shelley called Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. I reached out to Xavier asking if he would want to talk about his project, the first documentary about Shelley that I had seen in production. We met at a little cafe in my crowded college town where I warned the poor guy to arrive 30 minutes early to find parking. We talked for almost two hours about Shelley and our research and how he came to make Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Once, when conversation lulled, which it rarely did, like many of her fans, both Xavier and I could talk about Shelley and her work for days, he pulled out his phone. I have some footage, he told me. 
I eagerly leaned over to his phone screen where I saw Xavier and Shelley sitting at a table in an empty restaurant, smiling at the camera. An introductory montage played with archival clips from throughout her career. And then Xavier asked the camera, what do we need to make this happen? Money, Shelley replied. That's right, we need your support. The video ends and Xavier chuckles sheepishly. Yeah, he says, that was just for the Kickstarter. At this point, I'm reeling a little bit. The only recent clip I'd seen of Shelley was from that Dr. Phil segment, something we will go into later, and maybe a photo or two. To see Shelley as she is today, in full color, lucid, speaking to the camera in her signature comforting voice, feels like a confirmation. There she is, in the flesh. Coherent, all the lights on, at least for the moment. I knew it. She looks good for her 72 years, with big doe eyes and gray hair pulled up into a short ponytail. She's got about five scrunchies in her hair, all different colors. This is what I love to see the most. Her style is still as unique and out there as it ever was. Xavier, too, had spoken to Ryan. Though, if he'd been given the same advice as I had, to not show up at her house, to not intrude, he'd taken it with a grain of salt. He had shown up at her door, but I guess it's safe to say it worked out for him. He's still collecting material for the documentary, a challenging endeavor, especially since Shelley has not let Ryan nor Xavier into her home. They have to film at restaurants, he told me. Ryan has said much the same thing. Restaurants, her car. Rarely, if ever, does Shelley let guests into her home. I walked home from the cafe that day, buzzing with excitement that Xavier and Ryan, two of Shelley's closest friends, had spoken to me. So I had spoken to people who knew Shelley. I was getting closer and closer to answers. But looking back, there were already some answers. When I started this project, Shelley lived in my brain as a question mark, some iteration of herself as I'd seen her in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, somewhere in the absolutely enormous state of Texas, maybe having gone insane, maybe alone, maybe languishing in sadness, and maybe, like the tabloids and message boards suggested, on a slow path to a lonely death in obscurity. Now, that grim picture had been overwritten. The Shelley that lived in my brain had a corporeal form now, a concrete 72-year-old form with the same youthful liveliness I knew. And I knew she was okay, living in hill country with her not-boyfriend Dan and her aviary and animals of all flavors. And she has friends. She has advocates. She has people protecting her from, well, journalists and media, the public, the ravenous hunger we have for where are they nows and narratives of former stars gone crazy and exploitation of her mental illness for salaciousness. I had sought out Shelley, but beyond and instead, I had stumbled into a small ecosystem that thrived on and around her. Seth Abramovich, author of the Hollywood Reporter piece who interviewed and photographed Shelley in a redemptive way in 2018. Lee Unkrich, author of an upcoming Toshin book about The Shining, who had come to a lunch with Shelley bearing unaired interview clips and memories that brought her to tears of joyful reminiscence. Xavier. Ryan. 
I'm glad that she has, you know, people around her. I'm glad to know she's not alone. It's good to just check in on her and bring her, you know, assistance in, in, in any form of joy. I like to be able to at least present her with like, these people love you. You could sign this drawing an 11 year old girl did. An 11 year old girl is still inspired by you. And that's very touching for her and that. Next time on Texas Twiggy. At five foot eight inches tall with huge dark eyes, buck teeth, and a gangly frame, she resembles a large congenial waterfowl dressed in a baggy yellow sweater, white slacks, blouse, and a billowing scarf tied around her neck. But despite an industry that refused to take her seriously, Shelley persevered with her productions, slowly building a formidable empire of children's content. She had shows, Mrs. Piggle Wiggle, Shelley Duvall's Bedtime Stories, Stories from Growing Up, Nightmare Classics, Fairytale Theater. She had movies, hell, she had two albums produced in the Ode to Kids label, a record label she formed with Lou Adler in 1991. In 1985, she formed another production company, Mea Culpa Incorporated. In 1986, she formed Think Entertainment. In 1988, Cactus Productions. 91, Platypus Productions. Now this is the part where the show really gets research heavy. Like, I was up in JSTOR, I was putting in out-of-print book requests, ordering insanely expensive and obsolete technology on eBay, just to read the jacket notes, trying to find out what the hell happened in 2002 that made Shelley disappear. Texas Twiggy is reported, narrated, and produced by me, Emma Lehman. Our music is created and mixed by Olivia Springberg. Our research consultant is Sarah Lukowski. Special thanks to Avery Erskine for transcribing interviews, giving notes on endless drafts, and proofreading scripts. Thank you to my patrons, Jen, Kathleen Axe, Holly, Justine Springberg, Liz Wheeler, Dwayne Lehman, Kelly Alasser, Dan Travis, Jose Armenta, Kevin Dacity, Sharon, Xavier Hamill, Ken Lehman, Sarah Elizabeth, and Sophia Pulido. Don't forget to support the show at patreon.com slash Twiggy and join me next week.